Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we're talking with Jim Walmsley on a whole assortment of topics. In the first 20-ish minutes, we talk about how he's managed his career to date and the impacts of moving to France. In the middle 20-ish minutes, we get into some of the major takeaways from his win at UTMB and maybe even some of the blueprint, competitively speaking, for other American male runners that are waiting in the wings in future years. And in the last 25 to 30 minutes, we get some of the insights on uh, what he wants to do next, how he feels about the UTMB system, and much more. Thanks to Rabbit for supporting this episode, by the way. They make my favorite trail running apparel, and if you're in the market for a new kit and want to explore their lineup, head over to their website and use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off whatever you buy. With that, let's get started. Jim Walmsley, it's a pleasure to have you back on the Single Track Podcast. How are you doing today? Good, Finn. How are you? I'm doing great, and uh, gosh, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about in this conversation. One thing as I was prepping for this that came to mind, we had Tom Evans on the show before UTMB. And one comment he made that stuck with me was that he didn't spend much time reflecting on his Western States win. he just sort of dove straight into UTMB training. It was full steam ahead. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. Personally, I thought it was fine. I'm not much of a celebrator myself, but I'm bringing it up because you're in a similarly interesting position where you could soak this in. You could be full steam ahead for that golden ticket chase at Nice. Where are you at right now? I, th- I think in the last uh, a couple of days after UTMB in the last week, I've tried to take it as a little bit of a relief and celebration. Um, I have a quicker turnaround to Nice. So kind of one of the ideas with it in general is that there's not too much training to do between the two races. It's just to try to start feeling better. Um, but I also had a, I guess a wedding last weekend with a friend. Um, so it was a big French wedding and <laughs> took several days. So, uh, yeah, extra celebration there and not worrying as much about the running at, at this point. For listeners and viewers, I, I promise we will get into some UTMB specific questions, but here's where I want to start. It's, it's going back in time a bit with the pace you run at the time with your style of training, everything else in between, there was a fair bit of discussion among fans and media folks speculating that you'd be burned out and gone from the sport by 2018. And, you know, many in your cohort, they are out of the sport entirely or, you know, more or less they're on the downswing. I'm curious, what do you attribute your longevity to in the sport? And did any of that sort of negativity around your style at the time motivate you at all to uh, to be where you're at today? Um, I'd say the negative, like... I, maybe it was negative at the time, but uh, I wouldn't say it's had an effect. Uh, I've just always kept wanting to do my own my own thing, my own goals, chase the biggest races and stuff. So I think I've been able to keep the motivation throughout the years, which has kept me going. And I think it's always been just one year, one race at a time and kind of uh, just worrying more about being in the moment and training and um, not worrying if I'm going to be too tired in five years to keep doing it. But so far, it's been at least fast forward five years. And for the most part, uh, I feel like I'm able to run as good of races as I've ever been able to do at this point. Um, maybe racing a little less. So you mentioned racing less. When it comes to career maintenance or sort of keeping the ball rolling, you know, 
five, 10 years into the future. Has there been anything else besides racing less that you have changed in your approach? And um, yeah, like what do you think is going to be the single most important variable for, for staying at the top of the sport as long as possible? I mean, at this point, I think it's just proving some consistency of like, uh, I've been able to do that, but at the same time, it's yeah, continuing to try to train and continue what I'm doing because it feels like it's working. I think the biggest theme throughout like kind of my growth of ultra running has been increase in vertical um, just year after year after year. So time and, and the amount of vert, which I would contribute to a sort of strength training, tends to be something that I think has made the biggest impact and being stronger over longer distances. I think a lot of that can be contributed to um, always factoring in more vertical climbing and being aware of that. Dang. So, so vert at like, do you think that like when you look at the Europeans, for example, they're the fact that they spend an entire calendar year in the mountains in various forms on skis, on foot, et cetera, is that, is that a component to longevity? Do you think like, is that one of the realizations you've had being over there in Europe? Cause you see people like Ludo, for example, they're 48 and they're <clears throat> top fiving at UTMB still. Um, do you become like a more complete endurance athlete in that setting? Um, I think you're you're throwing in a couple of factors all at the same time. When you talk about Ludo or even some of the Europeans, one of the realizations is that just isn't that the Europeans aren't all identical. They're not all doing the same thing either. Um, there's plenty of them that live in valleys that don't ski in the winter, and they're just running all winter. But something interesting is it's almost even more of a grind because at least in the states we have some races in January, February, sort of to get ready for they don't have anything um, for the most part uh, during winter months. Like it's pretty shut down. So I think it's a bit dreary. And just like us in Flagstaff, uh, or at least myself, similarly in the winter season, you end up like I, I would switch gears more towards a running, uh, road running kind of pace, whether I do a half marathon, marathon, there were, there were a few years in there or just more flowier trails because as you climb an elevation, you, you run into mud, snow, whether that's Flagstaff, Sedona sort of thing, where in Flag we were able to get some stuff because of the Grand Canyon. But unless you truly go to like a desert, yeah, it's really difficult to get climbing. And then even that's climbing on maybe more of an American level, all things considered. I'm able to get a lot of climbing in the summer when I'm out in the mountains in Silverton. Um, I think you saw Zach train like that. Uh, I know I've been to Alaska. Vert, like yeah. climbing and vertical was super easy to get there, um, but the trails are pretty rugged. And then um, where I'm living at here in France, uh, just everything's up and down straight from the door, um, and it's pretty unrelenting. Um, but when you talk about Ludo and longevity, so one, they're, they're staying, well, he actually doesn't live in the mountains per se. He, he lives in Geneva, but he's got uh, a house in the mountains that he'll spend vacations at and he'll do like bigger blocks in the mountains maybe say a week or 10 days or two weeks but day to day he's not necessarily every single day just logging vertical uh because many times he's working uh he's an air traffic controller at geneva so uh he, he it's pretty flat on that side of geneva but something he does is like he raced so much in the winter on schemo he he, he loves schemo and then 
when you are in the mountains in the winter, basically you're, you're not running, but you're doing a lot of strength training with the vertical up and down. And then in combined, the hours you can do is going to go way up because there's, it's just like cycling or swimming or something. Um, a lot less bang on your body. Um, so now you're getting in a sort of cross training season. And one of my thoughts here too, was just a, a dedicated cross training season, I think could be useful for just about anyone. And kind of even in Arizona, we would almost have a better backyard to do a winter cross training season on a bicycle rather than skiing. Um, and that's kind of crossed my mind, uh, especially maybe some mountain biking that kind of gets you away from just pedal, 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 pedal. Um, mountain biking gets you still on trails and exploring things and really helps increase your vision on the trail. And then even that's a whole nother subject, but um, skiing and biking are both faster sports than running. And I would say athletes that do both tend to have better vision, especially downhill. So when you're running downhill really fast, they tend to see the lines a lot easier. Sort of along the same lines, I have always pegged you as a sort of curious student of the game. Like you sort of leave no stone unturned when it comes to putting yourself in a position to become a better athlete. You're curious among and it could be American ultra runners, it could be European ultra runners. Who are you talking to the most right now? And who are you learning from the most right now when you think about like adding tools to your toolkit and just generally becoming a better endurance athlete? I mean, without a doubt, moving here, uh, I, I literally live 300 meters from Francois. Um, so I get a lot of advice, a lot of ideas, but also we tend to also acknowledge that we're a bit different athletes. We come from different perspectives and there's an understanding that something that works for me might not work best for him, vice versa. Um, and then one of my best training partners here in Arash has been Simone Goslin. He ran CCC this year and runs for uh, team CDS Matrix, which is a French team. And then he coaches a bunch of the athletes on the team. And so he he's Got a good wealth of knowledge, and I spent a lot of time with him. He was my schema partner for a couple of races this winter, which was pretty cool. I'm sure there's a lot that comes to mind, but you know, in the context of this interview, what are some what are some learnings or takeaways from those guys that come to mind in the last year or so living in France? I mean, they're bigger uh, pushers on doing more schema. I mean, like you talk Francois Dane, and he's just he lives for the ski season. <laughs> Uh, a lot of the trail runners out here live for uh, schema season. Like they love it. It's a really beautiful time to you. You, you can kind of see how to link up the mountains a, a lot more beautiful than even trail running because the the ridges and the descents are a lot more fluid. And the amount of gear management uh, to do five ten hours is a really fun nice day when the conditions are right. Yeah, you get to go way faster than just running as well. Um, but the mountains give it a different perspective in the winter. Um, in addition, like there's some things that whether people in the mountains or people in the valley, another pickup is uh, a lot of people will do some of their longer volume days on something like a bicycle instead of just running. It's interesting um, because uh, you can get in 10 to 15 or sometimes like, I mean, take for instance, Francois did a 24-hour ride before Hard Rock for his long effort. It's it's interesting because you, you're you're doing something similar metabolism wise, eating wise, mentally, um, sort of things. It's 
also they tend to build skills whether it's schema or cycling that tends to make their experience a bit different than whether you were to just jump into those sports right away because uh i'm not as good of a schema guy so like to do seven hours on the skis with francois seven hours for him on the route that we could do together might be like he's just got his fingers in his nose no problem but uh me i'm huffing and puffing sliding all over the place not necessarily comfortable so it's a i would say sometimes kind of a harder day or like i'll take a fall or two just on the the descending or something and the falls add up to a fatigue um similarly um when when you look at especially like professional cyclists uh you can truly see like an art to a pedal stroke with the sport um, and just how much power they're getting through the pedal stroke and basically how inefficient you are when you just hop on a bike and try to do the same thing in the exact same setup. Like you you could be on the exact same setup. It's just um, how much power they're getting through the pedal. So as you put in more and more time to cycling as a cross training sport, you'll become more and more efficient. So when you look at the hours, it's a little bit of a grain of salt with it as well. I know you said earlier that it's it's unfair to you know put all of the European ultra trail athletes into one basket. There's significant differences between all of them. I totally respect that. But if if we had to sort of stereotype the American ultra trail endurance athletes versus some of the Europeans that you've interacted with, are there any other significant differences in their approach to the sport uh, that you think might interest the athlete and that have you know piqued your interest and in, it's led you to tinker yeah. with certain things in your training or racing approach. So I think it boils down to part of when you're truly in the mountains, like a valley that I live in right now um, with Francois. In the winter, we'll get two hours. At, at, well, we're in a not the best spot. We're in a pretty shady spot where where my house is. Uh, Francois actually gets more daylight than I do, but uh, we'll get the like say six eight hours of daylight, um, but probably two hours of direct sunlight. So I remember going back to um, Silverton this last uh, in May or June. I've still made it there every year. It's a special spot. But I remember when I was first going there, everyone talking about how narrow of a valley it is. Oh, you get no sunlight. And then finally going back there after being here for a year. And it's just like, man, this is wide open. Like essentially the valleys are just tighter together. They're, they're, They're living like truly like way back in the mountains that's pretty rugged um and and even uh, from europeans typically you'll have a, a vacation house or a getaway house sort of chalet in the mountains and you're not living there yeah. every single day it's it's quite tough life it's the farmers and the farmers are so badass here uh they're up at 4 a.m milking the cows and then 4 p.m and um they're off in high, cool places, and um, technically we're in a, a farmer's valley here. But then, what they don't tell you is they bring up like all their kids from like age two on skis, and this valley just crushes everybody uh, on skis uh, and schema specifically. Um, and it's pretty incredible. And technically, it's quote unquote like farmers' kids, but they're crushing athletes. But when when you look at it, it's just pretty rugged terrain, and I think it boils down to uh, it's learning to hike really uh so it's rugged enough terrain that i'm not going to run out the door every day uh if i wanted to run out the door every day i'd have to run on the the mountain roads but once you start linking together enough volume on the trails here it's uh hiking and essentially that's where the biggest gains in my performance have, have come bouncing around a lot here but i i just have so many 
uh, sort of miscellaneous questions for you. Um, yeah, I'll keep them coming. When you think about <laughs> when you think about the biggest areas of improvement for elite athletes like yourself in the sport, so it could be nutrition, it could be pacing, it could be logistics, it could be um, just any other compartment of the sport, where do you see the biggest room for improvement? Like which of those yeah. uh, categories of training and preparation do you see maybe as the biggest black box where even yourself, you're yeah. still experimenting there and you, you're coming into race day wow. with a lot of question marks because you're not sure about the execution? I would say it's quite a specific question and it basically depends on for who is the biggest improvement and for what. So um, I think everybody has a lot of different backgrounds and strengths. Like you, you at UTMB. For me, the, the biggest room for improvement was pretty much, uh, I would say, gear management and strength and hiking and basically looking forward to the steep hikes at the end of the course was a big mental shift for me this year. And do you think that that is, how about the most common one? Like when you look at, for example, like the American contingent that comes over, do you think that like your struggles are, can be extended to all these other athletes of your caliber that are trying to win the race or is it pretty unique for each person? Yeah, I think in general, um, American men come over and you need to slow you need to learn to slow down your training on steeper gradients i I would say steeper um gradients more weight in your pack and uh embrace the poles um so like when i train in flagstaff it's really difficult i'm basically just going up and down a couple trails um in uh, most places uh where many of the more well-known or established trail runners in the u.s will have only a couple options that'll be 20, 30% grades. Uh, so you need to get up over 20%. And once you start doing volume on climbs over 20%, uh, you'll eventually not be running them if you're, you do them, if you do them every day. Um, so lean into the hiking, you're going to get really tired. You're not going to want to head out the door and just, I start by just going, all right, I'll just start hiking today. And I just start heading out the back door and, uh, I just start hiking and then you kind of warm up into things and maybe you'll, you'll get some jogging in, but, uh, it's okay. Some days when <clears throat> I'm really tired, uh, I think easiest, one of the easier loops I have to get something kind of on the board that feels significant would be it's a thousand uh, meters or 3,300 feet in eight miles. Um, takes me probably hour to hour and a half to hour 45 to do, um, from my house. But, uh, there's a couple of those options um, out the back door, and uh, that's an example of like it, it's still not um, a very fast eight miles. But with hiking, you can still drop a very very fit person um, just hiking. So when I guess when I'm saying hiking, like it's a it's a pretty powerful tool, and as you extrapolate races longer and harder and more challenging, essentially hiking will become more and more powerful for that i think it's actually a really interesting difference even between zach and i and zach had a really great race and by all measurements i think a extremely successful utmb but when we compare ourselves probably on the trail um many of the things he he would kind of tap 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 running and i could be 
behind him or in front of him just hiking setting the the same pace and it's a different I think like kind of metabolism to it and I think that provides a little bit more um, saving when you can hike instead of run so I would make an argument that there was a bit more um, conservatism and and saving for later in the race because of it plus at the end um, when you climb out of uh, I guess Monte du Bovine out of uh, after Champelac, and then you climb straight up out of Triant. This year, we actually hit about a 30% incline for over a mile. Um, they changed the climb a little bit, but when you're doing 30%, nobody's going to hike that or run that, excuse me. Uh, nobody's going to run that at mile uh, 80, 85 um, after all that vert already. But I could probably hike it and put at least five minutes into just about everybody on that hike, just on that one climb. I would say. This UTMB coverage is brought to you by Oladance, wireless Bluetooth headphones delivering 19 hours of battery life, superior sound, the ability to still safely hear your surroundings, and an open ear design so you can wear them for long periods of time without developing ear pain. If you're interested, head over to oladance.com forward slash ST and use code ST at checkout for $30 off their OWS2 headphones. Also, thanks to Pillar Performance, a sports micronutrition company that I was introduced to after having Sam Parsons from Tin Man Elite on the show a while back. I use their pineapple coconut flavored triple magnesium product, which delivers high potency magnesium glycinate for better sleep and added recovery during my training blocks. If you're an American-based listener, head over to thefeed.com forward slash pillar and use code SINGLETRACK in all caps for 15% off your order. For international listeners... That same code and that same discount will work at a different URL. Go to pillarperformance.shop. And finally, thanks to Kodiak Cakes, makers of my favorite pancake mix. It doesn't just taste great. It's also 100% whole grain and packed with 14 grams of protein per serving that helps with recovery. Go over to their website, get yourself a few boxes of the mix, and in the process, use code SINGLETRACK15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. With that, let's get back to the show. When I look at past races you've done again this is just an observation i could be totally wrong but it seems like you have been biased towards front running and early attacks and races against your your competition but i'm curious you know you're 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 approaching your mid-30s are you anywhere close to a point of physical necessity where that strategy has to change and things become more tactical or pack like or even your mentality becomes like okay like in utmb this year where you know there were points where you know Zach and Germain got ahead. Like, are, are you, have you reached a point where like you're more comfortable with that? And like, you're actually, you could like see yourself winning races, not having to be out there pushing the pace. Yeah. I think, um, trying, like I can point to a few races like ultra trail Cape town or Madeira ultra, uh, Madeira Island ultra trail and a, a few where I really tried to stay a bit more patient, which doesn't always seem like it lasts so long, but staying patient for, say, it's a 12-hour race, staying patient for three, four hours uh, has made a really big difference. UTMB specifically, it kind of gets tired of trying to make any moves early, and they just haven't worked out. Or I haven't been able to stick it. I wouldn't say they didn't work. They obviously didn't work per se, but I would say more the confusing part is not being able to stick. Um, kind of after making a move, There, there's just kind of a a fatigue to follow that I, I hadn't been able to kind of shake off and bounce out of. 
and this year, um, I would say Zach and I are both were front running. Um, we were off together and then kind of took some pushing around each other when we had some opportunities. Um, probably me first putting in a couple minutes when we hit, uh, pyramid calcare, which is so 50 K is, uh, Le Chapier, And then you climb up to Col de la Seine. And then just after that, once you're in Italy, you go to this, uh, kind of really cal, uh, talus area and i was able to get a couple minutes just on that little section uh but then not trying to push from there but then um had a really good hike after cormier so i was able to have a few minutes but then uh not a good spot kind of once i hit the flat running um in between um and when zach i, I think he saw it and decided to push push on um but uh, he was able to get a few minutes on me, and I, I wasn't able to go with him. So I think we both had a comfortableness with being in the front. We, I think we both have a lot of experience with it. And both of us kind of realizing we need to just trust that side of the instinct, but probably um, be a bit guarded when we are in the front. Um, and I think that's how both of us kind of were able to maintain more energy for the end of the race and finally put together kind of more of a complete race at UTMB. Where does, and I, we should probably get into UTMB now, but uh, where does this win rank on your list of accomplishments across your running career? Like was, was this the hardest victory to earn? Was it the most impressive? Like, how do you personally feel about it? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of parallels between this win and the win in 2018 at Western States. Um, both are kind of the first and breakthrough sort of feelings. Um, so I, I would say one of the first times of winning either race has been really, really special, um, kind of just relief and feeling like, a uh, few years of work have paid off. Do you think you had your best day? I think I had a, a day I'm really proud of. I think... I, I had low moments, so it's hard to say whether that's your best day. I, I had moments when Zach was pulling away from Grand Col Ferrer on the, I mean, it's almost 13 miles of descent where I was just hearing his splits go out. And then finally I was hearing splits about the person behind me. And I was like, well, who's behind me? And they're like, I don't know. And then I hear like, oh, it's a French guy behind you. I'm like, oh, crap. And then... uh <laughs> Because, <laughs> all right, an American's getting you. Maybe you can at least be, quote, unquote, first French. And then you're not going to be first American or first French guy. You're like, ah, oh, man. But then uh, German coming just before Champé-Lac. But, yeah, I, I mean, the, yeah, the way I came back after Champé-Lac and the feelings from Champé-Lac to the finish uh, pretty much were as best of feelings as I could ever hope for. And I think I ran as well as I could hope for basically the last 50k and if i had that every year I, I think it would be very difficult to beat but also i'm pretty shocked by it myself and i i don't even feel confident enough that that would be there again next time i line up you know i know you talked earlier in the conversation about the importance of you know nailing gear management and becoming a more efficient hiker all of these you know benefits of being based where you are in france have there been any other uh, big takeaways about the move to France and doing most of your all of your prep over there versus you know doing everything out of Flagstaff or out of Silverton or you know somewhere based in the states. 
Yeah, I mean, when I come here, I know where to go in the grocery store. I know what things I like. Uh, I don't have, like, people always ask when they're coming over from the U.S., like, oh, what do you need? What do you want? What are you missing? And it's, it's really gotten to a point where it's just, uh, <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> I mean, like, you don't have any, like, I'm okay without anything from the U.S. at this point. And truly... I would say being more comfortable abroad and with French culture and speaking a, a little bit of French and making friends over here. Like, uh, I, I feel pretty happy, uh, over in here in France. Um, so I, I would say it's, it goes to being comfortable here. Um, where I think when you see people do a bit of training for UTMB here, you, you got to think about it in your head a bit and they could be living in a hotel room or just a room and sharing a house with a bunch of other athletes or something like that. It's not necessarily mm. ideal. It's not home. It's not what you're used to. So I think it's truly like um, moving here, um, create some of that comfort. That's actually one of the biggest advantages with it. I think learning gear management, learning, um, how, like just not even learning practicing hiking more and just realizing a bit more emphasis on that for myself specifically um obviously that can be done in the u.s but to truly like culturally feel a lot more comfortable here to understand like every time you want to go out to have dinner especially in a place like chamonix like i mean chamonix race week you need to call a couple days beforehand to make reservations like the number of Americans that just get caught out of like, oh yeah, we don't, or like you just ask them like, oh, where do you have reservations tonight? And they're like, I, I don't know. I, and then you're like, oh man, you're going to get caught without dinner. And it's things that happened all the time when I would come over, but uh, yeah, getting more used to that side of the culture with things, I would say um, is by far uh, one of the biggest advantages. It seems simple, but uh, yeah. In retrospect, though, was your hunch correct that this is exactly what you needed to do to win this race? Like the move to France had like in retrospect, the move to France, doing everything you've done had to happen in this order for a UTMB victory to be possible. Or are you now thinking, OK, based on what I've learned, OK, maybe I actually could replicate this stuff over in like, you know, Mammoth Lakes or in Silverton. It, there, there is a blueprint that works in the U.S. as well. Yeah, I think it's more of a, a mental shift and just hanging out every day with uh, Francois and Simone and another friend, Simone. Uh, it's kind of our little crew here. It's more of a mindset shift. So, of course, it's replicatable somewhere else. And without a doubt, you see Courtney and other women from the States replicate it from the U.S. Um, Katie Scheid, it worked for her really well to be more European-based and but she also came from the White Mountains and had a lot of backpacking uh, experience with that. So perhaps that's already there. Um, yeah, I think the idea of backpacking uh, is really powerful and basically to keep moving and you're moving fine. Just moving slow doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's, but um, if you're moving, depends on where it is, what it is. It could be a, a really great positive part of the race. Again, just doing like some self-reflection over the last 16 months, are there any other ways that you see yourself as a different person versus the person who, you know, was prepping to move over there in, you know, April or May of 2022? Like, how have you changed? I, I think it's just more, it makes me reflect more on how much I've, I've enjoyed the decision to come over here, how much uh, the shift in mindset I've, I've really, really enjoyed. And um, I, yeah, I... I I'm really happy and fortunate for like 
the French friends and community and people I have. And it's been a fun experience that I, I don't regret. It's last year, I would say there was a lot more stress with it where it, a big difference. Yeah. I think last year it would have been a lot easier to come over for uh, three months, 90 days that your visa is allowed and then go back. It's more stressful to come over and actually come through the immigration process. And it gives me a lot more eye-opening um, empathy for immigrants of all countries, whether you're immigrating to the U.S., immigrating other places. Like, it's not easy. It's big change. And when you don't speak the language, uh, there's lots and lots of obstacles. So um, I, I would say it's just been a really great experience as a, as a human uh, outside of just running and a success with with trying to win the race that I've been aiming towards, like I would say it's been a really great step forward um, to progress as just a person. Can you speak the language pretty well now? Are you like, are you pretty fluent in French? Has that changed at all? Uh, I'm not, I'm not extremely fluent. Um, It's getting a lot better. I can speak pretty simply with people. um, And I mean, even just, I, I actually think there there is a bit of weight lifted off my shoulders because even since UTMB this last week, I think I've been piecing together sentences just really well. But since we went home to Flagstaff in May, June, I haven't really been st- like keeping up on my studying at all. And um, I mean, it's just a typical Duolingo thing. But all I'm doing right like for the last two or three months has just been kind of extending that streak. And then I'm not really studying. But I am speaking with people when I go for runs. Um, I try to say what I can in French and just the amount of mixing French and English together with friends that are French that don't have the best English. Um, we're able to piece together a lot of stuff and it's cool to see the thought process all come together, but uh, definitely realize I'm getting a lot more comfortable speaking it. Getting getting sort of tactical about race prep for a second. And, and I'm sure you've already pointed some of the, answers to this question out earlier in the conversation, but just so that sort of we have it for anyone listening that's like curious about trying to replicate what you've done, what have you learned over the years, over your multiple attempts at this race are the biggest keys to success at UTMB? Like what are the essential parts of the, how to be competitive at this race blueprint? I think it's a thought process. So to think about time rather than distance, if you think about distance throughout the race, I think it's pretty demoralizing. But if you think about it as 20, 22 hours, then it doesn't change much. Uh, So you can keep kind of grinding away and you just commit to doing 20 hours, 22 hours, 24 hours, whatever it is. If you you just mentally commit that it's going to be a 24-hour endeavor, then it doesn't really matter how far you are. You might hit the finish line before or after that, but... I mean, if you go for 24 hours before you reevaluate how far you have to go, uh, you might only have one more hour to go. And you're like, all right, I can make it one more hour to the finish line. Like, we're, we're going to do it. So I think time-based perspective is pretty important, um, which then goes to not rushing it. So throughout the race, and especially the beginning of the race, I think it makes you more patient of a perspective, makes you more locked in as far as like, uh, no rush, because we're, we're, we're clicking along, we're going to get there when we get there. But uh, running faster now doesn't necessarily help you run faster for the, the whole loop. Um, you just kind of got to lock in and um, let the hours go by, stay on top of the little things of nutrition. 
temperature management. Um, but other than that, you're, you're in it for, for the whole duration of the, the number of hours you're going for. And I think a lot of that even comes with just becoming more and more in tune with the larger ultra sport, seeing some of the 200 mile races grow in the U S a little bit, but then, I mean, following along on tour this weekend and the winners in 66 hours, like it's pretty crazy. It's really, wow. really long day. Yeah, 66 hours is a long day, but then you say that to some people and they're like, oh, well, 66 hours could be three months. Like, I guess it could be worse. And they're like, oh, that's pretty messed up way of thinking about it, but sure. But maybe other people with through hiking experience have a different perspective that 66 hours isn't too long. There's been a lot of numbers crunched about, you know, objectively where the most important places on the course are, like, you know, we talked in our preview episode about how you need to be, you know, within a certain position at Cormier or, you know, X minutes back from the lead to sort of be in contention for a podium or a win. You know, we've heard things like, you know, the race starts in Champé-Lac. In your opinion, subjectively, having been out there on the course so many times, what do you see as the most critical sections of the course and why? Well, I mean, if I take away from this year that did work, uh, as opposed to other years that maybe I wasn't sure technically click i think it was just most important when i wasn't feeling good to to not um push to someone else's effort level and just to focus more on moving well taking care of yourself still and just waiting it out um there was a really good experience this year with being more patient with that i think if i rewind all the way back to 2017 i think it was a bit more getting locked in when I wasn't feeling good and still hanging in, hanging in, hanging in and probably broke me pretty bad um, with a big reset and champagne lock and this and that. And by big reset, I mean like a half hour, like lying down on a bench. Then even 2000, I guess last year, 2022, perhaps pushing when I saw an opportunity to put time into Killian. Um, and continuing to maybe squeeze harder than I should have when I saw a gap opening up. Um, perhaps it's just better, like, until it truly feels right and until you think you're going to make it to the finish, uh, which is in doubt almost the whole way. Just still sticking to your own effort and patient. Um, so it's kind of just more about your own game plan, I think. With UTMB, the course tends to be hard enough that I feel like everybody's broken. Everybody's suffering a lot at the end of the race. So it's really being in tune with yourself. Whereas, I mean, some of the days at Western States, I feel like I've been strong enough just to kind of do what I wanted to do. Um, whereas at UTMB, I think uh, the course has been hard enough to struggle through it. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, it's 14 hours compared to 20. Yeah. 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 Th that actually reminds me, and again, I, I do want to come back to you, Timmy, in a second, but in terms of the the potential of people of your caliber, where do, which race do you think there is the most amount of time to shave off at the top end? So like, is it, is it Western States or do you see the most potential for people like you in our sport to redefine what's possible at UTMB as opposed to Western States? Like, where is there more opportunity for redefinition? 
Well, I think Western states takes so much uh, coming together with the weather. If you don't have a decent weather day, uh, you're you're not going to come close to it. So if it's over 100 degrees, I don't think someone's going to touch 1409. So basically, like, and, and not to mention, I don't, most people don't realize that the high temperature, I think, is a lot less important then the morning temperature that you're starting with is uh, more important for the front runners than if you have a cold morning temperature it's like green light let's go and then you deal with the heat when it comes as opposed to people see the the high temperature but sometimes they don't realize it's gonna increase 40 degrees like there's a lot of hours of good running before it everybody gets hit by the heat and i think in 2021 my last western states like I think that was something that I saw and took an advantage of um, before everybody else. So we all got smashed by the heat, but um, I basically had an hour or so lead by that time. And the heat became my friend uh, to just keep a buffer. But as far as what's exploitable in time, I don't know. It's all ultra. There's all sorts of just marginal gains to be found. Um, And I think this year you also see more and more consistency with the front runners in aid stations um, with times dropping dramatically. However, part of that might be just me doing a little better to bring down average numbers because I'm typically just giving up 20 minutes at least at aid stations. So for me Mm. to clean it up to only be five minutes behind everybody was a lot better. It affects the average when I'm so slow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I find that fascinating at Western states that, you know, okay, you put you put a gap on somebody in the second half of the race, and then there's really an additional burden on the people that are trailing you in that you could just maintain from there on out. They have to increase their speed in that heat, which puts pretty significant toll on them. Like, it's just, an, it's, it's another way to look at the importance of establishing a gap early, and then to see that heat settle in. And basically how Kerner did it every time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, coming back to you, Timby, where did you focus the most this year on shaving off time? Was it in aid stations? Was it with gear? Was it on a certain section of the course? Where was it? I mean, so throughout the race, I wasn't looking at my pace time or anything. Um, I studied things. I ran through it a bunch of times at this point over the years. So I I know the course. The effort was fine. I think we went, I don't even know. I haven't gone back to look, but I'm pretty sure I saw five hours on my watch when we went through Les Chapier, and I remembered writing down some splits, and I think it was 5.03 the year before. So I was like, oh, we're moving pretty good. So not so bad. Just another year of Zach, and Zach, Tom, and I off the front again. Um, so there was a three of us instead of four of us uh, the year before. Um, but I didn't look at my watch again until I think the top of uh, Los Leger. Someone told me, oh, you're going to break the course record. And I was like, well, it's a little different course, but let me look at the time. And I think I saw like, uh, basically it was 19 hours flat at the top. And I was like, ah, I guess I'll be under that time, um, this and that. So uh, to Flager and I guess it's about 1 p.m., I think, uh, that was good, so I guess, but it wasn't because I was aiming for anything. Um, 
uh, it was mostly about effort-based, sticking to effort-based stuff. So um, managing how I was feeling and then finally getting my stomach under control, which means finally I was able to get on top of calories again and I was able to drink and eat enough while I wasn't feeling good to kind of hang in there, hang in there. But finally I could feel um, uh, th things like really clicked uh, just before Champé-Lac and um, then finally eating in Champé-Lac uh, yeah, changed everything to, to really get a, the right amount of calories in. This UTMB coverage is also brought to you by Brooks. I first started using their products, especially the Cascadia 8, way back in 2014 during a thru-hike of the Appalachian Trail. Fast forward to 2023, and they have a new and improved Cascadia 17 shoe and a high point clothing collection that merges great performance and style. Check it all out over at brooksrunning.com forward slash single track. Also, thanks to Morton, I've been using their hydrogels and 225C bars and caffeine drink mixes during all my key training runs and races this summer. It's sports nutrition made with all natural ingredients that go down easy and minimize palate fatigue so you can trust them during your longest efforts. Keep in mind, these are the same products used by top athletes like Tom Evans and Killian Jornet, so head over to morton.com to take a look at what they got and try some yourself. Finally, thanks to Features, makers of my favorite trail running socks. They're durable, they're comfortable, and they're stylish. And again, these are also trusted by many of the best athletes in our sport. If you'd like to give them a try, head over to their website, grab a few pairs, and use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order. With that, let's get back to the show. I know this is weird to say, but I always felt, if I look back at like all of your appearances at UTMB, I always felt that 2017 was your most badass finish because you seriously came back from the dead and showed that, you know, you, you, you weren't down for the count and you even fended off Pau Capel in the streets of Chamonix, who was hard charging to, to maintain that fifth position. I also thought last year was cool because yeah, you bled a little bit, but you still finished and maintained a pretty good position. I'm bringing those up because if you look at the two DNFs you had, given that you've shown this ability over the years to either to fend off just enough or to sort of resurrect yourself. Have you ever felt in retrospect that with those DNFs, if you had kept going, you could have forced a podium or even a top five? Well, 2018, I mean, I think I was in the front somewhere, probably to Les Chapier, maybe Col de la Seine. So maybe I was kind of towards the front of Italy, but I mean, I fell apart so early. I basically just overtrained that year and I remember descending down into Cormier and like people were just darting past me left and right. I was just getting past so much that, I mean, both, both DNFs, I think I was pretty just mentally broken. It, 2018, I, I can just honestly, and I've like tried to analyze it a lot, but uh, just, I think I overtrained that year. Um, and that was that. So, I mean, I just did too much and got too confident in between Western States and UTMB. I think it's easier when you've won Western States to go to, to maybe not be as hungry because I guess I've had two DNFs when I won Western States. So, and then you see Tom uh, have a DNF. So, like, yeah, I mean, you're pretty happy with the year if you can win a Western States. So um, perhaps there's a bit of hunger side of it that makes it more difficult. Then 2021, I I just didn't have 
the right like energy again i it wasn't an overtraining thing um but i think i got to a point in the race i mean where so much clicked mentally of what i wanted to do the next couple of years because it was just i'm over this i'm tired of this race feeling like crap i'm gonna come back and start doing it right and there was just a big mental shift to make life changes to to kind of dedicate trying to feel better at utmb and then 2022 last year i think all the pieces were there stress was high in life i would say um but again cracked and just off the front too i mean without pressure from other athletes i would say um which was really disappointing but then i would say that mentality of like well i'm still moving I'm not completely bonked out of my mind. Like there's still energy. I'm just not able to run fast. And just that was just a pure grind in 2022. Um, and then I, I think that was a really good perspective, something learning wise that I was nice to go through. I would have preferred a better day, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just kind of muscling out a hard day when, when things don't go great. So understanding that you know this could be the first of many utmb victories for you we can talk about what's next in a second i, I want to ask one other fun question at least it's fun in my opinion who do you see among american male ultra runners coming up behind you that also have the potential to win this thing in the next three to four years like who is it how big is that roster behind you and do you think this is sort of a floodgate roger bannister type scenario where because you won you yeah. now proven it and that you, you see this cohort of like six guys that are going to, you know, do it as well in the next five six, to 10 years. Yeah. How do you think about that? Well, I think most obviously next, most likely to be the next American male to win would be Zach Miller. He just has to run just like he did this year. And it's a matter of time that that will win the race. I think, um, I, th I think it was good enough to win pretty much every year, except this year. And then, yeah, I, I just think he ran really well. Behind him, I think I've always said before, even Adam Peterman won Western States. I think uh, I think with his background from Montana and backpacking and a bit outdoorsy, I think he has a really nice toolbox for UTMB. However, the lack of experience actually racing out here could play a difficult factor in being comfortable enough and how he approaches that. He tends to hit things uh, a lot better on the first try than me. Uh, so, yeah, who, who knows? Um, and he's he's still on the road of recovery from an injury. But and and then I think you you have a wide open list of really good Americans from there. You saw three uh, really high placed American. Well, also skipping Tyler Green got top ten. Um, so he's a contender. I, I don't think he was in contention at the front of the race this year or in years past but um it was a huge breakthrough and sometimes you don't know how the momentum of uh seventh place at utmb how much that's going to play in and how much he can ride that wave so perhaps that momentum will continue to to build to a, a higher place and then i think you you still got to look at ccc rather than americans that haven't jumped over to, to kind of put their foot in the water in Europe. I think you first got to start looking at the Americans that have and 
for the most part, that's been racing CCC for most people first, which is kind of the best first taste. But the pace of CCC is different. It's a much more patient pace at UTMB and a much more um, absolute like reckoning of the legs at UTMB than something like CCC, I believe. Um, I've ran, I guess, the, the maybe the closest race to CCC I've done is Madeira, but you just don't get the emptiness of running through the night. I think there's a bigger inefficiency with running through the night with how you hit the ground. Uh, I think it's a bigger energy expenditure, not only temperature, like temperature, a big one, if you're not managing it, but um, as well as uh, just how you're hitting the ground. I don't think you see the the ground as well at night. All right. So talking about the future, I'm really curious about how you see yourself defining this next objective. Is it about stringing together multiple UTMB victories? Is it about a return exclusively to Western States? How are you thinking about the future right now? So I think as an athlete, you have to continually adjust your goals and uh, essentially evolve with your goal setting. I, I would say for sure. Um, I feel less, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the next step is exactly. Um, what I'm going to be most motivated for at this point, uh, I'm requalified for UTMB already. I don't have to do a 16 K and, uh, break a pelvis to get into UTMB next year. So I'm qualified with Istria earlier. And then uh, I I have plans to still do Nice 115K um, in two and a half weeks. Um, we'll see. Uh, I'm doing a vertical race on Saturday, uh, just out like this vertical that I look out at my door. So I'm pretty excited about, oh, nice. I, I really like doing some of the local vertical races, which like the Americans never hear about, but, uh, I actually do a lot of races these days, but, um, a lot of them are super low key and no one hears about. And then even if you did, it's kind of just the French that get what they are. Um, but it's been pretty fun. Uh, but yeah, Saturday is going to be a really hard race, uh, against, yeah, we'll see. But, uh, I've been riding a bit more, um, my bike for recovery. Um, but I actually took a little bit of a fall yesterday. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. Not, not feeling getting back into training quite as quick, but more or less, uh, Nice sets up at least potentially opening the door for Western States next year. Um, and then I know I've, I've never done, um, Anything on the Canary Islands, whether it's Transvolcania or Transgrand Canaria, but timing with Transgrand Canaria seems to be interesting and fun. Um, obviously, is one week after this year, I think, Black Canyon. Um, Black Canyon seems a little less interesting being just seven, eight hours and full gas on trails I know really well. Um, and plus weather sometimes just floods that course you never know um but uh trans grand canaria seems to be pretty interesting it kind of seems like the closest thing spain has to a big uh ultra um event so that seems like a very entertaining idea for winter i know last winter doing skiing i missed uh running as much uh, surprisingly so um or unsurprisingly but uh 
so we'll see um, how to mix things together. But um, at this point, I'd say I'd like to open up the opportunities to kind of pick and choose what I want to do. But even if I'm in a certain race, uh, maybe I'd do something else that's not as famous. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like in your opinion, even I, I'm curious just to get more uh, opinions on everything. Like what would be next trajectory or this or that, like that you would see anyone doing. What's your hot take? Well, so I put this, que- I, I put this question out on Twitter or not Twitter on Instagram. And there were probably 38 people that said they want you to do hard rock next year. That if you are one of Dale's picks or whatever they call it, that you should drop everything and go do that race. Um, which I think could be very interesting. You know, I just think for, for me, it comes down to where is the highest density of competition and can you exploit that during the prime of your career? And I, I, because it's so difficult to get so many people of high caliber on the same start lines, it just happens to be the case that every single year it's either Western States or UTMB where that opportunity is. And, um, I mean, I have a whole list of races I would love to see you race, but I feel like there's a time and a place when you're in your mid forties and you can still, you know, win or rip a course record. So I think I want to see you keep going back to UTMB while you're still at the height of your powers. Yeah. Cause the other big idea could be comrades. Um, but I feel like I dedicated two years to that anyways, with, uh, doing kind of a unfulfilling marathon, but also uninspiring to go back to the marathon, uh, adventure. Um, didn't, really enjoy that block a whole lot. Um, in retrospect, it was just full consuming energy and time. Um, Mm. I would say to train many more hours on the trail is to me a lot more stimulating and enjoyable. Um, so I've enjoyed the trail running side of things. I think another crazy idea that could be fun is doing the golden trail series because you're talking about some really classic races and then some sharp racing, um, with some of the best runners in the world. Uh, Trying to come back to UTMB, um, trying to pull off the Western States UTMB double. I would say Hard Rock and Grand Raid are a little bit in the same boat. Um, I, I mean, I got unfinished business at Grand Raid for sure someday. Um, I'm not sure that time's yet, but uh, I hate that race, so we're going to go get it someday. <laughs> But uh, in a, in the best way, I say I hate that race, and that it, I, I think it got me good in 2017, and I just know that I need to be ready before I go back. So yeah, and then there's like the the really old records that still stand, whether it's Leadville, um, Jim O'Brien at Angeles Crest. Uh, I think people have thrown out um, Jeff Rose at Wasatch, um, some things like that, but. Uh, yeah, and then you're you're racing time, not necessarily currently the race. Uh, it's a new endeavor, and I think it's a disrespect to any of that to walk in and think it's going to be a one-year wonder and just like, oh, swept it up, here we go. Because especially for me, I think uh, most people have known it not to be as simple as that through some of the, the better wins in my career. Well, I guess the question I have for you is, in your mind – what do you want it to all amount to? Like at the end of the day, do you want people to recognize that you were the greatest to ever do it? Is it some other motivation? Like when you think about race construction and why you 
schedule what you schedule? What's what does it come down to for you? I I think I'm withdrawn towards the competition side of things. I would say Hard Rock's tough decision um, because I would say it doesn't have the competition aspect. However, um, both myself and my wife are totally in love with the San Juans. We we love the area. We love the route. We love the course. Yeah, we got married in Silverton. Uh, so yeah, it's difficult to say, but um, yeah, and then even kind of maybe scheming a race to do together with Francois or Killian or both or <laughs> um, getting Tom healthy on his first race. Uh, I yeah, I don't know. So, some of it could be just kind of coordinating amongst. I mean, we that's come up over the years many times whether many of the people in that group um, and more um, obviously get together more and just choose our own race to to do rather than the UTMB. Uh, we just do, well, we're going to go here. This is a place we all want to go and, and race and yeah. call it the common ground. Um, yeah. Something like that would be really cool to do. And I mean, <laughs> talk about a tectonic shift in the sport. If everybody did that the same time and did that and everybody stuck to oh it, um, sticking it to a race or an organization like UTMB that doesn't give a lot back to its athletes, um, especially its elites. Uh, there's not much of a kickback other than, Hey, we'll give you a pass to drive to the aid stations <laughs> and your crew doesn't have to get lost in the chaos of the shuttles and whatnot. So it's a super important part of doing that race that kind of makes you in debt to well, you need the pass, but yeah, there's, there's not much kickback from doing UTMB that you couldn't organize at a different race. And I think there's an underappreciation from them, from the elites and, and Western States arguably as well. But I mean, being a nonprofit, I think we kind of understand more from Western States less of a kickback towards the elites because I would say they're also elite-based. However, um, it's not a for-profit business model. Obviously, people make livings off of it, but people work in nonprofit for careers. Like, It's a thing. Um, it's limited. It's not based on growth and, and growing, growing, growing or buying other races. Um, so it's easy to pick on UTMB that way. But Or... Does UTMB, you continue to give them the power to grow and set up this kind of stadium of events and whatnot. And uh, if, if you can conquer that series, then you can kind of say you're, you're the best in the sport. That's pretty cool, too. It, it would be weird to think about everybody organizing to go to, say, Ultra Trail uh, Mount Rosa, um, which is in Switzerland, maybe one, two weeks different. Super beautiful loop. Or say you did the tour the tour 100 mile distance with 12,000 meters. So 2000 more meters of, tr of trails in, in Aosta Valley. Say everybody does that, but then it's vacated. Who's doing UTMB. Someone's going to show up and do UTMB and get that like golden ticket of like, I'm the UTMB winner now. And it's, I think all of us have chickened out and said, ah, I still yes. want to do that and be that person that, that gets a, a bid for that. So I, we've actually talked about this quite a bit on the pod and I'm super energized by what you by what you just said, and it sounds like you already get it. But like the the only question in terms of uh, creating a new race or you know shifting what is considered important in our sport, it really does come down to organization on the athlete's part. And if you can convince 
five or even just five or six other athletes of your caliber, like Tom, like Killian, like Francois, uh, Dakota, you know, Adam Peterman overnight, there's a seismic shift in the sport. And what was indisputably, you know, the world series and the most popular and the most important race in our sport changes overnight in, in one year. Like it's, it doesn't take 10 or 20 years of tradition to change things slowly. Like overnight, you guys would, uh, would change what I know, for example, I focus on from a media standpoint, it would be fascinating. And, um, you know, say what you want about you, Tim B that it would be fascinating to see maybe for the first time in history, athletes taking it upon themselves to organize and to, um, to, to just create new importance in the sport somewhere else. Uh, I think it's now minded to say in history, I mean, you got to look at track and field in the seventies and uh, just American track and field, I guess, but, uh, amateur sports sort of stuff, but just trail ultra trail running now. I mean, I'm talking ultra trail running. Yeah. It's a, 40 year old sport, um, organized sport maybe. Uh, but my uh, trail running's longer than that, but, um, yeah, it's something hypothetical to, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's easy to say, oh, I could do that now because now I have one UTMB. If I was, um, one of the guys <laughs> without a UTMB win, I think I'd be pretty hungry to still, uh, keep going back. All right. A couple couple hypotheticals here that I wanted to ask you before we close up. I really appreciate your time. I know we've been going long. A couple of these are from the audience too. Um, I know that, you know, well, I'm assuming, I'll assume that you wouldn't want to change much about your career because it all led to this moment, which was a UTMB victory, but purely out of curiosity, if you were forced to relive one year of your ultra running career with the knowledge you have now, which year would you choose and why? I think just going back to the first wins of whether it's this year, it feels pretty sweet, or 2018. 2018 um, definitely had kind of the mojo still from uh, the group of guys we had in Flagstaff. Uh, I would say that was a special time of group of friends trying to just conquer everything in ultra running in the world and everybody having a like-minded goal that got probably pretty shaken up with uh, relationship-wise just kind of during covid not talking as much and lack of communication is what I would boil that down to just growing apart. But I, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is like, essentially what sucks is there was a year off of racing anything big and important with, for everybody. That's kind of a bummer and how it took away from being able to do comrades. But, uh, 2018 was a lot of fun. This, this year is pretty fun. Um, I, I think they're on par. What's the race, if there is one, from earlier in your old running career that you look back on and you think to yourself, on a physical level, I don't think I could ever replicate that again, and why? Well, I still scratch my head on the Grand Canyon FKT. I know I cracked. I ran 120. So pretty much was pretty perfect. Uh, the way out, I think, was perfect. I was begging basically with my eyes to the friends that were helping me on the north side to like, hey, job done. We got a FKT, one across the, the rim. Who's going to give me a ride back around? And like everybody's like, dude, you got to get back in there. And I'm like, uh-huh. And I think I, I took four minutes on the north side. So there's some time there. I know I went number two at Phantom Ranch on the way back. So there's some time there. And then uh, w the climb out was 127, and I think there was 10 to 15 minutes 
like perfect climb out on rim to rim to rim would be closer to 72 minutes which is pretty solid just on a day out in the canyon i mean over under of a good climb up north kaibab i've always said is 70 minutes under 70 like you're pretty fit doesn't matter um so if you could hold on for that, I mean, you get to 17 minutes there. So I I like thinking about that one. That one's, but then again, you put it all together and like, yeah, typically not gonna, ding ding ding, perfect. That was pretty good. I'd throw Lake Sonoma 50 mile in there. Um, that one felt really good. Which yeah, everybody starts to change courses nowadays. So I don't I don't know. Yeah, because speed go. Spigo was a surprisingly good one. I don't think I was focused for that. That went into 2017. That was a good preparation year because I think I tagged Kendall Mountain before Speedgoat and was just like, oh, yeah, things feel pretty good. I think I'll go out to Speedgoat. Seems like a bunch of UTMB guys are going to do that as a prep race. I'll, I'll go do it too. And that went really good, but then they, they sh- made the course a bit different, um, which then Adam ran pretty much comparable enough to, to knock it off by 30 seconds. So, uh, so then there, yeah, that was a good one, but hundred miles. I mean, okay. So yeah, given the exact conditions, um, 2018, I think was, was my best run at Western States. So 2018, I would take as maybe out of all those, that's, that's the one, like I just had the perfect day, 2018, uh, Western States. Not 2019. 2019 is faster. 2018 was the best run ever. Again, I know it's debatable. There's a whole history here. There's people that came before you. But in my mind, you're one of the the first athletes in our sport to really comfortably, and I, and I, I want to stress comfortably go pro. Like you got, a, you got, from what I understand, you got a pretty good contract from Hoka and maybe Cliff back in the day, Wahoo, all that, that whole combination. What was your experience like going pro on the business? Like, did you get an agent? How was that navigated? How did you land with Hoka versus like Adidas or, you know, Solomon? Like, what can you share there? Because I, I just find this so yeah. interesting. Well, I signed a contract with Hoka in 2016. It was kind of a weird time to come to it. And then just given the, the circumstances I was living I didn't need too much. I think it was more in the dirt bag, trying to make it runner world. I I could have been, especially in the beginning, like pretty okay with just getting shoes and clothing and stuff. And like, oh, sure enough. But um, I mean, I think realistically, I only got offers from Nike, Solomon, Hoka, Adidas wasn't in it. North Face, the the job at North Face was vacated. So technically, they weren't in it. Um, what other brands? Uh, On wasn't in. I think Ultra was around, but more, more just yeah. I think there's a lot more competitive choices right now, and I think people have really seen that trail running's on fire. Um, which I think, just as a sport, we need to continue with that momentum. And even now, I think pushing forward with the top athletes trying to reach for more bigger contracts is going to have a trickle down effect on everybody. So it's pretty important things. So when I first started, I talked to my college coach from university and she hooked me up with um, a guy that was in the industry, but hadn't had any agent experience, but had interesting background. Um, Overall, I would say it didn't work out great. 
a couple other people signed with him, but um, it didn't really go how I thought it would. Um, so then, uh, but yeah, I, I ended up going with Hoka because they give me the best livable salary that I could work less and, and have reliability of, of being able to put more into running. So that was the most important thing for me was the freedom to, to go all into the sport. And then I would say it snowballed from there. Um, and then since probably 2018, I, I have not had an agent. I don't want to say it's like legacy based, but what do you think you've brought to the sport? Like what's one thing that comes to mind when you think about your impact or your influence on our sport to this point in our career? Like if there's one thing that you want to be remembered by for just like something you, you changed in the culture or influenced in the culture or strategy, what's one of those things? Hmm. I know a longer term effect I would like to have and maybe still not have fully fulfilled, but um, I'd like to try to give younger people um, like 20, 22, sort of more of an idea that they can go into this as a potential sport and profession rather than just a hobby, something for fun. And like when you're done with college running, you're done with running, um, that it's equally as respectable to do um, and good athletes do it. I, I think that, could, or you could be 32, 30, 35. I mean, I think Rob Carr hit the scene really at like 32. Um, and just like took over the sport for a couple of years. Uh, so that doesn't matter the age, but really like, and then if you look at a global scale, the number of athletes, especially coming from different sports and with a really athletic background and you look at running, I think it's different than cycling or skiing that um, we, we all run to a degree. Uh, so a natural transition into running is a lot more fluid than saying to, to start hopping on the bike or to or to start skiing like you, you kind of need the feel for it but we all run with our feet so technically we we all have a pretty good um competency of a feel with our feet um to begin with so i think it's it's a sport where you can transition into really interesting um so i i really like the stories of people coming from different backgrounds Again, this requires rewinding the clock a bit and examining, you know, 2016 to 2019 in your career. I, I always felt as a fan, this was the height of sort of like the Walmsley hype train. Like there was the wrong turn doc, the light my fire series, Hoka project X, some of those classic pre-Western iron far interviews, the New York times feature. Generally you were lighting it up and there was, you were given the media like so much awesome content and discussion. It was so fun to be a part of. Is there anything you remember from that phase or career of your life that you know fans might be surprised to learn about, or maybe they didn't appreciate given the amount of exposure and pressure you had? Um, well, I'd say kind of bold because it feels like you've changed, right? Like you've gone, you've gone like media dark and stuff. So I'm just like you, you've you've changed, and, and not in a bad way, but like you've changed. No, I I I technically post the same. I had a good friend at the time that was more into. Uh, he, like I, I let other people have login info to just 
tweet or post whatever sometimes. Um, and now I have people cover races for me because it offers a really great uh, insight and, and look from, from my perspective of what I'm doing on things without me having necessarily to do the work. But I had a really close relationship with a friend and he, he was all into like, we, we'd have a lot of beers and uh, basically just, yeah, kind of the unfiltered long run stuff uh, would more or less make it to bigger media side of things. And not to mention the ignorance of just coming from track and just thinking you can roll in because you think you're faster fit or blah, blah. But I guess it also boiled down to inner thinking that I had a, a big talent that was underrecognized on the track and still believing in that through trail running and that trail running could be the medium for that. But um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I think uh, given the right backing from a brand at the time, it would have been a lot bigger moment in career wise instead of just like, I, I think I didn't really get a early easy break from getting picked up by anyone i would say um comparatively maybe but that's okay i i think uh if people can get picked up earlier and have an opportunity to do this sport i mean yeah i think uh debo says it best of just like trail running can change the world and it's definitely changed my world and i think trail run hike um are better for it do you feel like there's been pressure to self-censor your views on the sport or your projections about what you can do in the sport? Or has that just been part of the process of being in the sport longer and talking to the media, talking to me is exhausting. And it's like, I'm just going to like say minimum. I don't know. I've always thought about making an anonymous uh, handle on Twitter or something, <laughs> but more or less, I just don't care enough to do it all or keep up with anything. It's not really in my personality to be chit-chatting and arguing with anyone um i prefer just not to to have that side um yeah no i i don't think the hot takes have really calmed down within my friends and small talk but uh it's not my personality to to type it into twitter i don't care it's more theoretical talk and it's lighthearted and a lot of times if it makes the internet it's it's taken too deeply um so and and i think ultimately uh, most of us, if we want to say anything on a bigger scale, if you break it down and pick it apart, you're probably wrong. So <laughs> there's no point trying to preach anything out like too loudly. Um, I don't feel like I have a cemented philosophical um, reasoning behind what I'm doing. I, I'm kind of shooting from the hip and blah, blah, but. So I, no, I'm not, I don't think too much has changed for me personally, but at the same time, I think it's just maturity and more, more speed bumps and stop signs along the way um, that kind of slow me down of maybe not the best thing to say. Well, Jim, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Really appreciate just, the, you know, the great insight on UTMB on your career on um, what might happen next. We'll make sure to link to all your social media in the show notes. Any final thoughts, Any anything you want to leave listeners with before we go? No, if, if anyone has the best ideas to where to go next, uh, keep them coming. Let me know. <laughs>